grace, mercy, and peace to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Dear friends in Christ, we are now two weeks into this temporary normal of staying home, keeping one cow's length between us when we must venture out, and finding new corners to clean. A bit of Facebook humor to start. Introverts, check on your extroverted friends. With all this talk of quarantine and social distancing, they're not okay. But obviously, use text and social media. We don't want to forget who we are. Well, there was no social distancing at the House of Simon as this unnamed woman pours her alabaster flask of ointment over Jesus' head. And the extroverts are out in force. Why this waste? This could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But there is something more going on here. The disciples and Jesus observe the same scene. But ironically, only Jesus interprets it correctly. The disciples' calculus involves worldly circumstances and personal piety. Jesus takes in the entire sweep of God's plan of salvation. She has done a beautiful thing to me, to prepare me for burial, that I might be the Savior of all people. During this time of isolation, whether we're introverts or extroverts, we risk the same myopic vision of the disciples. We follow the tabulations of infected and dead around the world. We worry as Wall Street plummets, even as we cheer the price of the pump and calculate our coronavirus check. But this is to follow the 12, and then the 11, and not to see. Not to appreciate the reign of God breaking into their world and ours. Jesus is the Savior of all people, and the Lord of all, of everything. That means that as the world suffers during this pandemic, he is closer to us than at any other time. It means that even COVID-19 must obey him because he is its Lord. Another Corona comic offered this. At coronavirus has turned us all into dogs. We roam the house all day looking for food. We're told, no, if we get too close to strangers. And we get really excited about car rides. Roaming the house for food. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread. This, for me, is one of the most sorrowful aspects of our virtual gathering today. We hear the word, but we cannot celebrate the sacrament. Ordinarily, we would share the body and blood on this, the first Sunday of the month. Yet, for a time, we refrain to protect our neighbor. Let us then take a moment and reflect on these words of our Lord at the close of this reading, by which Jesus inaugurates this sacred meal. There are at least three things we should take away from these four short verses. First, the forgiveness of sins. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. In the body and blood, in, with, and under the bread and wine, the supper gives all the benefits that Jesus' cross an empty tomb procured for the disciples. For all who participate in faith, forgiveness of sins, life, and salvation. Second, Jesus' blood takes us back to Egypt and the first Passover land, whose blood was shed to protect Israel. With branches of hyssop, they dabbed the blood on the doorposts and lintel. Bloody protection against God's avenging angel. God's people then and now 
are preserved from ultimate danger by blood as we journey to our eternal inheritance. And third, in and through his bloody death and bodily resurrection, Jesus inaugurates a new covenant for all who commune. He established a new community of faith, binding us all together in one body, the church, his bride. One day we will sit down together to the marriage feast of the Lamb with all the saints of every age. We may be isolated for today, for another fortnight, for another month, but we are already joined in community in Christ. We continue with the next stanza. Isolated, but not alone. What better way to describe the center section of this reading, verses 36 to 46? Jesus enters a place called Gethsemane and drops off the age. Sit here while I go over there and pray. He continues forward with the three. Matthew mentions no distance, rather a condition. My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. And he leaves the three as well. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed. This section is all about Jesus, isolated from the disciples, alone with his Father in prayer. Never before has Matthew given us such insight into Jesus' prayer life. Never before has anyone prayed like this. It is a very specific prayer, a very specific cup. Jeremiah spoke of it. Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath, and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I am sending among them. God sent Jeremiah to Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and all his people. The kings of the land of Uz and Philistia received the visitation, and, quote, all the kingdoms of the world that are on the face of the earth, and after them the king of Babylon shall drink. Close quote. There are at least 14 such texts in the Old Testament. John employs the image as well in the book of Revelation. Yet in all these texts, it is God's enemies who are given or forced to take the cup and to drink its wine of destruction. Yet here, as Gibbs summarizes, here the stunning, stunning salvific reversal in Gethsemane proclaims that the innocent Son of God faces the cup of God's wrath to give his life in exchange for the many on behalf of others. Close quote. It is the cup that we deserve. You know it. I know it. We confessed it earlier that we were born sinful, that by nature and by choice we have turned away from this Jesus, that we have enthroned self-interest and pride as our kings. Yet it is Jesus that drinks the cup down to the last dregs. It is horrendous. Hence the impossible prayer. My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. This text is all about Jesus. It plums the depths of our Christological understanding. If it be possible, cannot express a real possibility in Jesus' mind. Yet at the same time, it does express a real desire, a profound wanting on Jesus' part. The torment and the terror are real. We dare not explain them away. Jesus trembles. 
and does not falter in the face of God's wrath. These 11 verses teach us much about the one we see here in Gethsemane, isolated but not alone. First, the path that Jesus walked was not easy for him, even yet he was strong enough to walk all the way to the cross for sinners, for you and for me. This strong Jesus stands in contrast to the emphasis we often hear placed on Jesus' character today, that he is gentle or meek or patient or loving. All of this is true, of course. But here, along with his father, Jesus becomes the stronger man, the strongest man who will plunder hell to save us. Second, we gain a richer understanding of Jesus' filial submission to his father. It is without fault. He is perfectly obedient to the Father, completely faithful to the plan of salvation wrought before the creation of the world. Finally, these verses teach us that the reign of heaven, the royal reign of David's greater son, comes in ways that we can neither comprehend nor completely understand. He walks to the place of his coronation, a Roman gibbet, to die under the charge. This is Jesus. King of the Jews. He is our Savior, our King, and He is our brother. The union of two natures, divine and human, in one crisis and mystery so profound, we bow our head in awe and worship. We continue with the next stanza. As we consider our consideration of Jesus isolated but not alone, we come to Caiaphas' house in Jerusalem early very early in the morning. Sometimes I fear we lose track of the chronology of events, and I don't know if this celebration of Passion Sunday running the story together helps or not. The last timestamp that Matthew recorded for us was back in verse 20. When it was evening, the Passover meal began. How long did it take? The dinner, the discussion, the institution, the supper? We're not told. And then there is the lengthy upper room discourse in John's Gospel to be accounted for. From the upper room to the garden in Jesus' threefold prayer. Remember Jesus' rebuke in verse 40. Could you not watch with me one hour? It's not hard to imagine a period of time of maybe three hours before Judas shows up with a great crowd of swords and clubs. And now this trial, or hearing, however you choose to characterize it, it also likely went on for hours. For we're told that many witnesses came forward. All the while, Jesus is isolated. He prays alone. He stands before Caiaphas alone. It must be. But if I'm correct, then we cannot help but realize that despite their efforts and their zeal and their false testimonies, nothing can happen until Jesus opens his mouth. Finally, in response to the high priest's demand, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Then Jesus speaks. But first, what did Caiaphas understand when he placed Jesus under oath to swear by the living God, are you the Son of God? It is absolutely the right question. It is the question that each of us, every man, woman, and child, must answer if not here, then in the throne room of heaven. Recall Jesus' earlier promise and warning. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. And 
Whoever denies me before men, I also will deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Matthew chapter 10. Isolated, but not alone, Jesus speaks. You have said so. It is the same enigmatic answer given to Judas earlier that night. One commentator puts it, After all the words of false testimony, now Caiaphas ironically has spoken the truth. The truth is coming from his own mouth, even though he does not believe it. You have said so. And then, Jesus pours gasoline on the fire. But I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, coming on the clouds of heaven. Sitting at the right hand of power are Yahweh's words of promise spoken to David's son in Psalm 110. Jesus is claiming a position of universal authority. And from now on, the Sanhedrin will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds invokes the imagery of Daniel chapter 7. Together, these Old Testament passages agree with the promise of Psalm 118. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The concluding words of the parable of the vineyard that so incised the Jewish leaders. Was there ever a more resounding yes? Yes, I am the Christ. Yes, I am the Son of the living God. Yes, I am your Savior. But there's another part of this section, an antonym, an opposite, if you will. Notice verse 58. Going inside, he, that is Peter, sat with the guards. And then verse 69. Now, Peter was sitting outside. There is no more telling summary than Matthew's death turn phrase. Inside, now outside. They are the harbinger of Peter's tears. Too many have tried to sugarcoat those tears. No, let them fall as a profound expression of his poverty of spirit. And we do well to see ourselves here crying with Peter, for apart from the Spirit, we can do nothing. Into Peter's, into our poverty of spirit, the resurrected Jesus will come to renew and restore, but not yet. We postpone the final stanza of our hymn, which is an Easter stanza, and move instead to our final reading for today. Isolated, but not alone is our theme. But with this section, the accent falls on isolation. Indeed, Jesus' personal presence seems almost disconnected from the story. It is, it is as if the whole world is talking about him in third person while he stands off to one side. Not quite center stage. In the opening two verses, Jesus is bound and taken to Pilate, but we don't see him there until verse 11. There we find his only speaking part. You have said so. Vaguely reminiscent of Jesus' response to Judas and to Caiaphas. The rest is Pilate and the crowd. In this final meditation this morning, I would like to focus our attention on verses 3 to 10, a section we might label Judas' despair and demise. This side of Easter, these events have almost an otherworldly aspect to them. They don't really seem to apply to us. But I would ask you to reconsider. They really do have three very important things to say to us today. First, they demonstrate that God is never not in charge. Pardon the double negative, but I think it is justified precisely because we 
See, it seems as if God is nowhere to be found among the chief priests and Judas and the hangman's noose. Yet right there in the middle, Matthew explains, then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. Even this, God is bending to his purpose. God is never not in control of history, of the events of our life, our world, and that includes the current pandemic. Perhaps now more than at other times we're inclined to throw up our hands and say, Why this? God, what are you doing? But if God can use these broken individuals, we can find comfort in his larger plan, moving forward to God's glorious goal. Second, sin and evil in our life is like yeast. It grows until it infects the whole person. As Christians, we should not despise Judas or the chief priests and elders in this section. Rather, in humility, regard them with pity and horror. We know nothing about how or when Judas came to the place where he could plot with Jesus' enemies, betray him with a kiss, face the self-inflicted hell of remorse and regret. Neither do we have a window into the souls of the chief priests and elders, many of whom are honestly looking for the truth human reason had taken them down the logical path of ritual obedience to the point of hypocrisy. Who turned those silver pieces, pieces into blood money anyway, if not you? How are you not, Father, and son worthy of the heavenly treasury? But what do their feelings say to us? Perhaps we could sum it up as simply as, don't play with fire. Paul says the same thing when he asks, Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? May Geneto! No way, Jose! My loose translation in the Greek. Yet we remain one click away from falling into deeper sin. One spicy anecdote about our neighbor away. One misreported deposit away. That's all it takes. Judas and the chief priests can teach us not to flirt with temptation the danger of de delaying our repentance. Finally, as Judas tragically found out, forgiveness lies in no one else save Jesus Christ. Judas sought the absolution of the chief priests and elders. I have sinned, betraying innocent blood. <laughs> what is that to us? See to it yourself. Instead, it was the innocent blood that he had betrayed. And yet even then, was available to him. When times are dark, when we are engulfed in confusion and despair, then more than ever we need to run to Jesus, to hear his voice in the words of absolution, you are forgiven. The only difference between Judas and Peter, or us for that matter, is that Peter lived to hear those words on the other side of Easter. You are forgiven. They were both faithless that Friday as Jesus stood before the governor. So were all of us before the Spirit worked faith in us, faith in the blood that was about to be poured out for the forgiveness of sin. As we set aside the passion narrative until Friday, I invite you to think of that question. Where is forgiveness found? You know the answer. We take time to contemplate Christ. Amen. Now may the peace which surpasses all understanding keep your hearts and minds through faith in Christ Jesus, the life everlasting.